0: One, two. Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan US Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, managing editor of the Phelan US Center's blog on US politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to James Morrison, who is an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at LSE and a center affiliate of the Phelan US Center. James Morrison joined us on the 28th of June, 2022, to discuss his new book, England's Cross of Gold, Keynes, Churchill, and the Governance of Economic Beliefs. Can you give us, our listeners, a quick overview of your new book, England's Cross of Gold, Keynes, Churchill, and
1: the Governance of Economic Beliefs, and its key messages? So this is a book about the attempts by the UK to try to rebuild the international economic system after the devastation of the First World War. Now, before the war, there had been this thing called the gold standard, the international gold standard system, and London had really been at the center of that system. And a lot of people thought that this was a wonderful way to organize the economic system and encourage all kinds of economic integration, free trade, shared prosperity, globalization, and so on. So then when the war came and disrupted this system, the UK led the charge to try to roll the clock back, as it were, to the pre-war organizational scheme. The Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, the sort of Secretary to the Treasury at the time, was Winston Churchill, and he restored the gold standard in 1925 against the very vocal objections of the economist and polemicist John Maynard Keynes. Now, unfortunately, it was an unmitigated economic disaster. It sowed the seeds for the Great Depression, led to all the turmoil, terrible things of the 1930s and the 1940s. And so economists and economic historians and political historians for a long time have tried to understand just why Churchill tried to restore the gold standard in the way that he did. And this book is an attempt to try to revisit that history to tease out some of the broader lessons that we can learn and apply today as we think about hegemonic transition.
0: So why was the introduction of the new gold standard in 1925 such a a failure or a disaster. And how has this failure informed subsequent economic policy in the UK and elsewhere since?
1: Well, there are a number of things. Of course, the First World War was hugely disruptive. It really broke the pre war order in many ways, certainly not least in terms of the economic organization of the world. The challenges then were extraordinary. But the goal to try to restore that old order, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, as it were, was stupidly ambitious. And what's worse is that the actual implementation of that attempted scheme was itself really costly and problematic. Very simply put, there had been a massive amount of inflation during the war. That's very common during wartime. And the difficulty was to try to root out that inflation, to try to make the price levels in the UK and elsewhere go back to the level that they had been before the war began in 1914. Now, As if that weren't bad enough, they decided they were going to try to do this very quickly and using extreme amounts of austerity. And they did this for some understandable reasons. They really thought that they needed to do this, that this would work. And there was a huge coalition in favor of this movement across political classes, economic groups, importers, exporters, producers, consumers. Everyone seemed to agree that this was the only thing to do and that it really did need to be done. But unfortunately, as we know, to try to massively shift the whole price level of the global economy in a few short years is tremendously painful, and it leaves much uncertainty for the future. So, <clears throat> so I have a sidebar question
0: in terms of Churchill being the, my understanding is that Churchill was sort of the leading figure going back to the gold standard. Were there any factors beyond the economic in terms of, I guess, cultural is the word I'd use, in terms of trying to maintain... Britain or England's
1: imperial power as a gold standard-backed country. Is there anything to that? That's a great question, Chris. And you're absolutely right. Your suspicion is 100% correct. It's actually not that hard at first blush to explain the restoration of the gold standard because there are so many things pointing towards that very course of action. For one thing, we're talking about the monetary system and money is really central. No surprise, right? And so the idea that you would try to rebuild the globalization and the free and open trade, well, money had to come first. That was the thinking because money itself determines all the other relationships in the economy. So for economic reasons, it seemed very important, but there were also all these social, cultural, and almost sort of anthropological reasons for restoring the gold standard. The creation of the gold standard and its modern form in the UK really dates back, frankly, to the glorious revolution. This is the first time that the UK's monetary authorities decide that they will maintain a permanently fixed metallic value of their currency. And with just a few small exceptions, for several centuries, they maintained this commitment. And so there's this enormous historical precedent that this is who we are as a people, this is what we do. We have the best money in the world. We don't want to be like those other countries with their inferior currencies. But there was also a, a sort of religious faith that this was a virtuous way to run the economy. And you can imagine the kind of Victorian virtue of hard work and scrimping and saving, the kind of Dickensian type uh, world in which everybody tries to do the right thing and that there was a commitment by the government to maintain the metallic value and there's a commitment by the people to do what it took to swallow whatever monetary and fiscal policies were necessary to do that. And so there was this moral as well as a, a kind of identity set of rationales as well. And last and certainly not least, you mentioned Churchill. Of course, Churchill loved these kinds of symbols, these icons. Just imagine the beautiful gold coins with the image of the sovereign on one side, St. George killing the dragon on the other. This was emblematic of a kind of British imperial system, and Churchill loved it.
0: If I may, I want to draw on that point a little bit and make a kind of a contemporary comparison. You know, when we think about the rise of populism in places like the UK and the US, and we think about this the symbolism there that you've just sort of mentioned, are there any kind of parallels between that return to the gold standard and Brexit and, say, for example, the kind of the harking back to a kind of a, a golden era that, that
1: Trump and, and his supporters kind of look to or... Absolutely. There's, there's something, so I'm an American, of course, here, and uh, that explains part, some of my connections with the U.S. Center. I work in the U.S., I also work on the U.K., and I'm one of the Americans here who tries to understand this country from the perspective of having grown up in the U.S. And one of the things that strikes me about living in this country is the deep conservatism, with a small c, the kind of Edmund Burke-type conservatism of this notion that we have slowly gradually figured out the right way to do things, and we, at our peril, question these established ways, these deeply rooted systems. And there is a kind of restorationism that we see again and again and again across British history. So, of course, there was the most disruptive conflict, arguably, in the British Isles, which was the English Civil War, all the violence that followed here in England, but also, of course, in Scotland, Ireland as well. Well, what did we do after the English Civil War? We restored the monarchy. Then, in the Glorious Revolution, Edmund Burke later explained, it wasn't radical, it was deeply conservative. We were hearkening back to the ancient liberties of the Anglo-Saxon peoples. And, across the 19th century, we have all these modern, sort of left-wing revolutions. The UK, of course, has none of that. It's deeply conservative, we keep going back, we don't like radical change, And so Churchill, himself at this time a conservative with a capital C, but also with a lowercase c, very Burkean conservative, very much wanted to try to go back to the way things were. There are many parallels with Brexit and with the attempt to return to the golden age, to make Great Britain great again, so to say. And uh, I talk about some of this in in the conclusion quite explicitly, So for those of the listeners who would like to get Uh, Some specific examples, I'm, I'm happy to point them to the conclusion where they can find several more.
0: So coming back to sort of more recent history in the U.S., ahead of the 2016 U.S. presidential election, some Republican candidates advocated a return to the gold standard. Is this at all a possibility in the U.S. or any Western country?
1: Yes, absolutely. Of course it is. There's a real question here of whether it's possible practically, and then a real question of whether it's possible politically. As a practical matter, yes, it is. We could, in fact, peg the dollar to gold, which is a kind of version of the gold standard, tomorrow, if we wanted to. The question, of course, is whether that version of the gold standard or any conceivable version of the gold standard could be implemented fully and sustained. And that's really a question of the politics of the matter. Now, one of the major arguments in this book, based on all this historical research, this archival work, it's it's something of a long book, and so I show in many different instances in many different ways, there was no such thing as a singular gold standard. There were different versions of the gold standard, different interpretations of the gold standard, different beliefs about the gold standard. And I often use the metaphor of religion to try to explain that just as there might be one religious faith, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, We might still have people who fervently believe, very well meaning, good, honest people, who nevertheless disagree about what it means to be a good Jew or a good Christian or a good Muslim. And so too with the gold standard. Different governors of the Bank of England, fervently committed to restoring the gold standard, had very different understandings of what that meant. How much gold do we use? Can we use non gold currencies? Should we use banknotes? Should we limit people's ability to move gold across borders? All these kinds of questions. So when we talk about whether we'll go back under the gold standard, the first question, of course, is, well, what version of the gold standard? Which of the many plausible gold standards are there? And then the political question of whether it's actually achievable and sustainable really turns on those different versions. Some of those versions of the gold standard are far easier to implement, far less costly, far less disruptive. And some of them, of course, are deeply disruptive and hugely costly. For the record, I'm against all of them. And I think that's one of the subsequent questions, perhaps the next one.
0: Yeah, and I, I think why why would you be against all of them in that case? What what's what are the main problems with going back to the gold standard?
1: We have a lot of different versions of the gold standard. We have a lot of different arguments for the gold standard or the gold standards plural. And I think that there's one really good argument among them all. It's head and shoulders above the rest. And that is the notion that the gold standard is a kind of commitment mechanism that we can impose on the monetary authorities to make sure that they don't take advantage of their position and debase the currency so they don't deliver too much inflation or obviously hyperinflation. That's the best argument. We need to control, to govern the governors of our monetary system. And these days, we see a lot of inflation, of course, and this kind of thing. And you see a lot more discussion of how can we limit the uh, emission of currency? Maybe we need something like the gold anchor, as it was called. Now, I should say, I think I understand and I share the concerns that people have about rising inflation and particularly uh, situations of hyperinflation. They're often you know, catastrophic. But even inflation itself is disruptive, difficult, and very painful. So I get the fear that our policymakers are going to be short-sighted, they're going to run the economy hot and put too much money out there. But there are sort of three basic problems with that argument. The first is that in hard economic times, like we saw after the First World War, or perhaps today in the days of COVID and so on, maintaining the gold standard is immensely costly. Imagine if we only used gold coins. We would have to print, mint, all this gold, and emit it all over the economy. It's gonna force massive adjustments in moments when we already have disruptive supply chains, we already have difficulties with, with the war in Ukraine, and so on. Now, of course, Maynard Keynes made this argument, but so too did sort of more conservative figures, most famously, Milton Friedman, and at some points, maybe even Friedrich Hayek. I mean, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz said that this, the restoration of the gold standard, was a major factor in the Great Depression. Robert Mundell, in his Nobel Prize address, went even further, saying, not only did this cause the Great Depression, but it actually led to the Nazi Revolution and to the Second World War. This is in Mundell's Nobel Prize address. So, in these difficult times, we try to achieve this kind of hugely, stupidly ambitious goal of maintaining the gold standard, and it can cause enormous harm. The second issue is that even in the best of times, it's deeply impractical. So, What do we mean by the gold standard? Do we mean that all units of currency are gold? Well, that is extremely difficult to imagine operating. Try going to the closing on a house and showing up with the payment in gold coins. You'd need a wheelbarrow and you'd probably be the subject of an attack uh, and a robbery on the tube. Even for low-value transactions, actually using gold in everyday transactions is completely impractical. So right now, this morning, on the way here I checked, and the spot price for one gram of gold is about 50 pounds sterling. Now, that's 10 times the price of a pint. So what we're saying is that if you had a gold coin that you would use to go and buy a a pint at the pub, you would need one with one-tenth of one gram. Or if you wanted to buy a candy bar from the Sainsbury's, you would need one that's one-one-hundredth of a gram of gold. I'm not even sure it's possible to make a coin that small. And if you are making a coin that small, how can anybody know, without a microscope, that it's a real legitimate coin? Well, maybe we could mix it. We could have an alloy, which is what we often do with gold coins. But if we're just talking about 1/100th of an ounce of gold to buy a 50p candy bar, how can anybody know if that coin has any gold at all in it? It could easily just be the base metal. So it's just impractical, even in good economic times. Now, remember that the whole point of using gold is because we don't trust the monetary authorities. But if they can, get away with things because it's so impractical to actually check whether our currency has gold in it we're not really able to limit their authority and this takes us to the last the third and most important point the gold standard does not discipline the monetary authorities not in theory i mean in practice if we actually look at the operation of the gold standard the monetary authorities enjoy enormous discretion when they are operating the gold standard system take the uk before. First World War, and then after they restore it. Before the First World War, the coverage rate of gold to non-gold currency was about 67%, two-thirds. Then they restore the gold center in 1925, and now the coverage rate of non-gold to gold currency is 33%. It's half. And yet, this is key, the spot price of gold in London is the same in both periods. So evidently, they were able to double the money supply without actually affecting the London gold price. That's a huge range of discretionary authority. So we have all the limitations, all the difficulties, all the costs, and perhaps even more important than that, we think that we're controlling the monetary authorities, but when we look at the history, we didn't control them. So we have false hope, and it takes our eye off the prize, which is to actually try to keep them accountable rather than relying on this fictional gold standard myth.
0: Now, in the summer of 2022, we're seeing unprecedented inflation and economic pressure in societies across the globe. How can research like yours, that looks at sort of economic and monetary history, how can that inform us about what's going on now and how we might begin to tackle some of these problems?
1: Well, I think that it should help us cultivate a certain degree of humility. I completely understand the desire to, to focus on the moment, right? That's why we do what we do. We want to try to understand what's going on, we want to make the world a better place. But a lot of the challenges that we face are maybe perhaps not fully precedented, but certainly have some analogs in the past. And there's a lot we can learn from that. That's the reason to do good quality history so that we really make sure we're learning the right lessons. One of the dangers that we see today is that as inflation increases, we see more and more policymakers, including more serious policymakers, thinking about whether We need to return to something like the gold standard to try to limit the monetary authorities but studying that history shows that it just did not work the way we thought that it did there's another sense in which we need to have humility and that is about our ability to really control the economy we have this strange duality among our central bankers and other monetary authorities they act as though they are able to steer markets very adeptly very adroitly and get them to do what they want. And that's important because if they, I mean, you wouldn't want a monetary authority saying, I've lost control of the system. That would not be good. But at the same time, markets are hugely complicated enterprise, comprised of human beings. Whenever you have large quantities of human beings doing things, it is very difficult indeed to predict where they're gonna go or to steer them where you might like to go. John Maynard Keynes called this the sort of animal spirits of markets. So we need to recognize the limitations of our monetary authorities to keep the economy going in really difficult circumstances like COVID or wartime or following the global financial crisis. But we also need to remember that they are exerting a lot of power and a lot of influence. And when they throw their hands up and say, well, it's just markets doing these things, it is their job to try to respond. And they have to be honest with us about the initiatives that they're taking. The inflation we have today is probably almost certainly in some part related to all the policies we've had in the last decade, since 2008, and it will be the responsibility of the monetary authorities to try to find a reasonable, humane way to keep a lid on inflation so that we don't get the situation to spiral out of control. Unfortunately, they're going to have to do it with their brains, using hard work and discussion, honest and open discussion between markets and the governors, the Bank of England, Federal Reserve, and so on. And of course, the policymakers in the legislatures, they're not going to be able to just rely on some simple tool, some simplistic device like a gold standard to solve this immensely difficult political problem.
0: This is just an opportunity if you want to say anything more about the book, or if if I've missed anything out on the questions, or indeed any other projects you've got coming up that you'd like to talk a bit about.
1: Well, I'll say about the book. So the book is... It is quite long. It is very detailed, particularly in the middle parts. That's obviously necessary, that the empirical material, all that archival work, that is the basis on which I make the claims and come to the conclusions. I did not expect to find what I found. And so um, there is a direct connection between the things I say in the first parts of the book, in the introduction, and in the conclusion. But my recommendation is for people who are not experts in the 1920s financial system, they probably don't need to weighed too deep into those middle parts. There's a nice discussion, I think, at the beginning of the book, which tries to explain why this matters, what happened, and the overall gist of the argument. Then in the second chapter, I try to explain uh, how this relates to existing bodies of scholarship and the ways that we think about international relations more broadly. In particular, I make arguments here about the importance of actors beliefs, as opposed to material interests. And I think it's a really good case to think about this classic discussion of beliefs and ideas versus material interests, because we're talking here about something which is so much about material reality, economic policy, money. And so it's a great sort of playground for us to explore. So those who might like to think a little bit about those big questions of ideas versus material variables, the second chapter is a great place. And then all the contemporary discussion about role that belief plays in political economy more generally, the analogs to Brexit, those kinds of things. Those are all in the conclusion. So when my mom got a copy of the book, she said, this is, a, this is a long book. There's a lot in this. I said, don't worry, mom. Read chapters one, two, and the conclusion, and you'll get what you need to get from it. So that would be my advice to anybody who doesn't want a very deep dive into the 1920s.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for speaking us at the ballpark today.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure. Delighted to be a part of this great podcast. James Morrison is an
0: associate professor in the Department of International Relations at LSE. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to James Morrison for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk or you can send us a tweet at lse_us, underscore US and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing US Centre or the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.